This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope everyone is enjoying the beautiful fall weather. I'm sure you're seeing what I'm seeing. Hundreds and hundreds of birds landing in the yard, tired and hungry from a full day of flying, as they migrate southward to spend the winter in warmer environments. I've been working really hard to make sure my yard provides natural foods like insects, berries, nuts, fruits, seeds, and clean water. I've had some nice surprises recently. Now that I've converted my front yard to a native flower garden and a meadow, I am noticing more birds stopping over, and they are staying longer. This tells me the amount of food my yard is offering is increasing. For example, I just had several flocks of 100 goldfinches or more come through the yard. In past years, the goldfinches would stay perhaps a day or an overnight and then take off again on their journey. This year, the flocks are staying for three, four, and even five days at a time. This is a really good signal that my yard is providing for birds on a larger scale. As I have said in previous episodes, I do not deadhead my perennials. This means most of the dried seed heads are eaten by migrating birds. I don't rake in the fall, so the birds are able to find lots of tasty bugs under the leaves. And the native trees and shrubs in my yard provide safe roosting areas for exhausted migrators, as well as fruits, berries, and nuts. You can probably tell I'm already planning what to add for next year. Anyway, I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be talking with award-winning author Heather Holm. Heather has written a brand new book about wasps, and it's been gaining a lot of attention in the native plant world. We're going to be talking about this forgotten insect in the garden and just how incredibly beneficial it really is. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Heather Holm. Heather is a biologist and pollinator conservationist and the author of the brand new book, Wasps, Their Biology, Diversity, and Role as Beneficial Insects and Pollinators of Native Plants. Her book is the first full-color illustrated guide featuring 150 species of flower-visiting wasps in eastern North America. This 400-page book also contains identification tips, geographic range maps, biology, and natural history. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for inviting me to come back. Well, I have to say congratulations. This is a beautiful new book, and it's already won several awards, I understand. Is that correct? 
Yeah, the book has won five book awards already. So that's a big surprise and I'm thrilled, of course. Yeah, that must be a great feeling. This is really the first time anyone has written this extensively about wasps. Am I right? I think so. I, I mean, there's some older sort of natural history books that focused on certain genera, but nothing sort of this comprehensive. And I'm not going to call my book comprehensive, but at least profiling many different species and giving people the idea that there are more wasps than just the ones that <laughs> may sting you at the end of the summer, for example. Right. So this was quite an undertaking. Yeah, this took about three years to research and write, and um, and then COVID hit. So sourcing more photographs than I usually do from my books from other people, just to get it all put together. But it finally came together a little bit later than I wanted, but pretty pleased with the end result. Right. So tell me, what was the motivation? What was it that made you want to write a book about wasps? Well, it's kind of exactly what you said, Catherine. There really wasn't anything out there as a starting field guide just to give people a sense of wasp diversity. And my book, I basically went through different websites and materials and came up with a list. And that list was really framed around what uh, particular wasp genera, for example, or wasp families are frequent flower visitors because I wanted to tie in that wasp plant relationship and look at it from a conservation standpoint, but also from, you know, a pollinator enthusiast standpoint that people see wasps visiting flowers in their garden, for example, but they really don't have a guide to help them identify what those wasps may be. Right. So now what exactly is a wasp? You say in your book that a wasp is neither a bee or an ant, but is somewhere in the middle taxonomically speaking, right? Yeah, wasps are actually ancestors of bees. So they belong to the order Hymenoptera, and that includes ants and sawflies and some more primitive type wasps. Bees are actually descendants of wasps. So you can really think of bees as hairy wasps that at some point in time, change their diet from a carnivorous diet to a plant-based diet. So wasps, for the most part, there's two sort of big groups. There are parasitic wasps that don't build nests and the females lay their eggs on or in directly in the prey. And then my book largely focuses on the nest building wasps. And so an individual female, like bees, most of them have solitary nests and they're out searching for really specific prey in a lot of cases. And that's what they sting, carry back to their nest and cache inside the nest for the larva to feed on. So you, you start to sort of see a lot of similarities between the nesting behaviors and strategies between bees and wasps. If you know a lot about bees already, you'll see a lot of similarities. Right. Now, as you were writing this book, you joked around with friends, you said, saying wasps were the last thing anyone would be interested in reading about. Where does the public's aversion come from? Well, I think the public's aversion comes from, you know, the few social species that tend to like to inhabit or build nests in the places around where we live. And 
those incidents of people getting stung by a social wasp. They associate all wasps with being bad or a nuisance. <laughs> this time of year, as resources become more scarce, you know, it's yellow jackets showing up at picnics or flying around your, your pop can that people just think of as a nuisance and that they, they're not really providing any benefit. But in the book, I talk about that, you know, for the, for, for the most part, you have wasps out doing their thing, hunting for prey, building nests right in your garden. And those wasps are solitary and don't have any sort of negative interaction or stinging occurrence with humans. So I wanted to give people an idea that they're out there, they're doing their thing, they're not bothering you. It's just a few that can be kind of a nuisance, including the some of the social wasps. Right. They really are the forgotten insect in the garden, the beneficial insect, I should say, aren't they? Or should I say they, they, they were the forgotten insect? This book puts them front and center. <laughs> yeah, they are. And that, that's what I tried to highlight. I mean, bees, we can credit with a really important ecosystem service of pollination, but wasps can provide pollination in some cases, but they're doing a lot of pest population control of other insects. So they really are important. And even if you're a vegetable gardener, you may have paper wasps preying on cabbage looper caterpillars. So they really are providing a benefit. They just often don't get credited with those ecosystem services that they do provide. Right. So with this book, you're hoping to inspire a, a fascination with wasps and also educate the public about just how beneficial they really are. Yeah, absolutely. And then their, you know, minor role as potential pollinators of, of plants. They're not, for the most part, hairy like their bee cousins. So they're not as adept or good at moving pollen grains around from flower to flower. But as adults, wasps get most of their calories or nutrients from sugary substances. And that can include flower nectar, the waste from aphids, honeydew, tree sap. So they're, they're seeking out really carbohydrate-rich, sugary food sources. So I had no idea there were 150 species of wasps in eastern North America. That was a big surprise while I was reading the book. And not only that, would you say they all visit flowers in the garden? No, not all of them, but many of them do. There are a few that you just are very rarely visit flowers, or maybe maybe they do, but nobody has documented <laughs> that visitation. I did include a few species that don't really visit flowers, but they have some interesting natural history traits, preying on specific spiders, for example, and ones that may be commonly seen hunting through the garden that people would want to identify. So are they referred to as pollinators, though, wasps? They are. There really is a need for more research on looking at their pollination effectiveness of certain plants. We can assume that they do a minor amount of pollination because they are frequently visiting flowers, but that really hasn't been quantified for the most part. It's really difficult to find any kind of study wasps pollinating flowers. So we just have to assume that there is some pollination going on until we can specifically characterize what, what plants may be pollinated by wasps. Right. I know in your book you mentioned incidental pollination. Yeah, that's, I think that's a good way to characterize it until research can 
really demonstrate that, yes, this particular flowering plant is primarily pollinated by wasps. And pollination ecology is a really difficult science because you literally have to demonstrate that that insect is moving a flower's pollen to another flower of the same species and successfully delivering that pollen on a receptive stigma. So <laughs> you can imagine how detailed that would be just to quantify. Right. So I guess a major difference between, say, like a bumblebee and a wasp is that the bumblebee is gathering nectar and pollen to bring back to their underground nest to store or to feed other bumblebees. But the wasps are looking for carbohydrates in the form of sweetness, like nectars and rotting fruit and things like that. Do they bring anything back to their nest? Yeah, you, that's a great way to explain it. You know, bees are, the female bees are actively visiting flowers to collect and carry pollen, usually externally in loads back to their nests, whereas wasps are just going there as the restaurant but not taking any anything away. To answer the, the second part of your question, they are actively hunting other insects and spiders. So, that is the main food source for, for the larva when, that they deposit into the nest. I read that in your book that uh, wasps really like to eat insects that can do great damage to crops. I really had no idea how valuable they are to agriculture. Yeah, um, particularly paper wasps can be pretty valuable in certain agricultural systems, hunting tobacco hormone caterpillars, cutworms in some cases with some of our mason wasps. So, you know, the effectiveness of a wasp population taking care of a large agricultural field of a <laughs> problem insect population, there probably is an imbalance there. But if we're looking at smaller systems, our home vegetable gardens, our flower gardens, if you have a, a nest of a particular wasp species that's hunting caterpillars, they probably would do a pretty good job of helping out with your vegetable garden, for example. But when we scale that up, um, it's harder to say that, <laughs> you know, wasps are really, you, you don't need to continue using in, insecticides because wasps will take care of those larger agricultural systems. But really important to understand, though, that yeah, they do play a role. Now, you talk about wasp habitat and how to enhance that habitat to make it even friendlier for the wasps. So what would be ideal habitat if you wanted wasps in your yard? Yeah, it's it's pretty similar to what the similar recommendations for native bees. So about the vast majority of solitary wasps nest in the ground. Many of them look for bare patches of soil. Some specifically only nest in certain soil types, so some like very loose sand and others compacted sand. So having those patchy areas of not heavily vegetated ground would be attractive. In some cases, people have sandboxes and their children have grown <laughs> and they find wasps such as sand wasps nesting in the sandbox. So that's kind of a interesting raised bed approach to providing bee and wasp ground nesting habitat. And then uh, the minority like bees nest above ground. So the, for example, the, the mason wasps primarily nest in pre-existing cavities, holes in wood, hollow plant stems, similar places that you would find many of our solitary native bees nesting. So that sort of habitat approach to gardening, leaving some stem stubble, placing some wood on the ground to provide nesting opportunities would serve both bees and, and some of these solitary wasp species. 
Right. So I, I remember the last show you were on, we talked about how important it was in the early spring not to be doing a lot of gardening work because it disrupts ground nesting bees like bumblebees. Like So digging holes and moving plants around probably should be kept to a minimum, right? That would help the wasps also. Yeah. So they like bees, um, these solitary species, you know, they have their certain phenology or window of time that they're active or nesting during the growing season. So for some that have larvae developing below ground, they may not be emerging until middle of the summer if that's when the adults are active. So it's just really trying to minimize disturbance as a whole in the garden is generally good for all insect populations. And the other piece, of course, is not getting out there too early. I know we <laughs> we get through the winter and that first warm spring day, everybody wants to get out and start cleaning up their gardens or maybe put, putting in some of the first plants that can be harmful in some cases, depending on what may be nesting below ground and hasn't emerged yet. Right. It's very difficult for me to restrain myself at that time of the year. (laughs) I just want to burst out the door into the warm sunshine and just get in the garden right away. But it really is better for these ground nesting insects to um, wait for the right temperature to emerge. Now, is the temperature when the wasps emerge, is it similar to bumblebees? I would say for the species that emerge in early spring, it would likely be similar. But many of the ground nesting wasps are active more in the summer months when their prey is available. So uh, if you have a particular wasp, for example, that hunts katydids or grasshoppers, that wasp will likely be active, you know, in July, for example, when katydids and grasshoppers are growing into adults and can provide some nutritious prey for their larvae. So that it's really um, tied to the prey more so than bees when a bee can emerge at any time throughout the growing season and likely find some kind of flowering plant to collect pollen and nectar from. The carbohydrates, the sugary stuff is their their gasoline, if you want to call it that, their fuel, just to, for them to fulfill those life cycle tasks before perishing themselves. Right. Now, could you talk about maybe some wasps that are living in the New England area? Oh, sure. Yeah. My book covers Eastern North America. There's a lot of, a ton of overlap in genera for, you know, a lot of those regions within Eastern North America. So some common groups, let's just call it that. So for the social wasps, paper wasps are are very common. My friend describes them as the wasps with the long dangly legs. <laughs> but they they're building any social wasp is building a nest made of paper and the paper wasps build open single comb cells often attached to house soffits or some sort of horizontal structure. The other social wasps, the Vespula, Delico Vespula are building paper nests hanging from trees or below ground. But then with the sort of the solitary wasps that are common, we have wasps in the genus Cerceris, and their common name is beetle wasps, and they often hunt metallic wood boring beetles. And there's one particular species that happens to hunt emerald ash borers, so beetles. So they've been used as sort of a biosurveillance tool. They if you if you know where 
trying to anticipate the dispersal of emerald ash borer, for example, and you know where the nests of this particular wasp are, you can track which prey the females are bringing back to the nest to see if emerald ash borer adults are dispersing into new areas. So that's been an interesting tool to track the dispersal of an invasive beetle that is decimating our ash trees. Right. That could end up being really useful, especially since they're native. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So they just happen to hunt native wood boring beetles in that same genus and decided, well, I I can switch over to emerald ash borer as well. So they just happened to start hunting for them as well. So. Right. If you had to divide wasps into the two separate categories of those that build, say, paper nests in trees or uh, attached to houses and that kind of thing, and those that are ground nesting, what would be the percentage? Is it 50-50? Oh, no. So in, in North America, I think we have less than 50 species that are considered social. So that are, you know, building a paper nest and a nest that's initiated by a single or a few females in the spring and and then becomes a colony. I would say the vast majority of wasps fall into the group of that parasitic wasps, the ones that are laying their eggs directly into their prey and not building a nest. And then the solitary wasps sort of make up the rest. And I, sorry, I don't have a good percentage breakdown, but I would say in Eastern North America, I think there's about 2,600 species of wasps that are solitary and around 10,000 that are parasitic and 45-ish that are social. So big difference in the breakdown. Very few are social is the message, I guess. Right. Well, I have to say this book really has it all. You have tons of full-color photographs for identification. You have range maps. You even have lists of native plants that attract each particular species. I'm going to have fun this winter. I'm going to go (laughs) through the book again and choose some new native flowers I can order so I can draw more wasps to my yard. Now, you dedicated this book to several women, and these, I take it, were women who were pioneers in the research of wasps. Could you maybe talk about these women a little bit and how they influenced you? Yeah, so the some a couple of the women really worked side by side with their husbands, doing a lot of natural history field work and documentation of wasps. And in many cases, they were not named on any of the published papers. <laughs> it was just the husband. So I thought it would be nice to highlight some of these women that had contributed an equal amount, but maybe weren't getting their due credit at the time that they were doing their work. And there were a few that some wasp species are named after, and some that are just really eloquent natural history writers that decided to focus on writing about wasps. But through their writing, you really learn a lot about the particular species' natural history and behaviors. So I just thought it would be nice to highlight these women and give them a little bit of credit that maybe was due. I think that's wonderful. And I see you actually have quotations from them throughout the the book. Yeah, I just got so fascinated reading these old natural history papers. And you can just tell how passionate they were about studying wasps and how fascinating they found wasps. And so I decided to include some of these very old quotes throughout the book, often related to the you know, with the species profile. So people could really 
get into the mindset of, of that person studying the wasp, you know, 100 or 150 years ago. Right. That's wonderful. So now, could we talk about anatomy for a minute? Because they are very different looking. Could you maybe <laughs> explain to our listeners why they are put together so differently and what purpose that serves? Yeah, so the, um, there's a big anatomical the difference between, or not big, but there is an anatomical difference between that group that are the parasitic wasps, the ones that lay their eggs directly in their prey, and then these nest building solitary and social wasps. And the parasitic wasps often have this really long ovipositor or egg laying tube. And that can be really scary if people see this large wasp with a egg laying tube that's twice the length of the wasp flying flying by. <laughs> but that is basically a, a two-in-one apparatus that they use to inject their venom temporarily or into the prey, which temporarily paralyzes the prey. And then the then they also lay their egg through that egg-laying tube. Now the nest-building wasps, they don't have that two-in-one apparatus anymore. So they are primarily using their sting to sting their prey, which causes partial or full paralysis. And then they are laying their eggs through a separate opening at the end of their abdomen. So I know that's kind of an elaborate explanation of one part of wasp anatomy, but it's really that evolution of going from just not building a nest and laying your egg directly in the prey versus actively building a nest, having some parental care, using that venom instead to make it much easier to get that prey back to the nest, carry it or drag it without it trying to fly away. So the, the sting is that causing that paralysis. So that's, that's a really important anatomical difference. In the groups, you were probably talking about too many of the wasps have a really long constricted waist, which is not typical in our bees. And they also have a relatively linear form compared to bees, a lot less hair because of no need to collect or carry pollen. So they do, they do look quite different than bees in some cases. Right. So they're built for speed and expediency. <laughs> They As are. opposed to the bumblebee, which is, is, I mean, when you put the two together side by side, it's like, my goodness, they couldn't be more different. Yeah. And then the differences in their anatomy, you know, wasps with really long legs tend to be the wasps that straddle their prey after they, they sting it and paralyze it and then walk it across the ground back to the nest. The prey is literally sometimes two or three times the size as the female wasp, so she can't pick it up and fly with it. So they have very long legs that they can straddle the prey and then literally drag it or walk it back to the nest across the ground. And then the smaller wasps that are a little bit more compact tend to hunt their prey that's smaller than them, so they can clutch it underneath them or have different prey-carrying techniques to fly the prey back to the nest. So you can see there's advantages and disadvantages of flying the prey or having to drag it across the ground. Right. So now, do wasps like that qualify as carnivores? Yeah, they would be carnivores because the, the larva would be consuming the insects or spiders cached inside of the nest. So yeah, they're they're considered carnivores. Wow. So now every year here in and I'm in New Hampshire, at this time of the year, I see so many wasps. They seem to like come out of nowhere. 
Why is the end of August and September? It seems to be such an important time for them to be out and about. What's going on? Yeah, so it kind of our you know, like our last conversation about bumblebees, social wasps have almost identical life cycles. So the colony is initiated by a single or a few females in the spring. They produce female offspring or workers, followed by males, and then new females who will be next year's queens or nest foundresses. So this time of year, we're into mid-September. The males are out in abundance, and they're looking for those new females to mate with. And so you see a lot more wasp visitation to flowers, particularly the social species, and they're usually males, <laughs> just looking for some food sources to fuel their mate searching activities. Um, and then when we get, we're getting into colder mornings and soon to have a frost, resources really start to get scarce. And the social wasps can sometimes get a little bit ornery <laughs> at the end of the growing season. And, you know, they will even start consuming their own larvae just because they're running out of food. But all of those social wasp nests uh, in the northern U.S. particularly are annual, so they will all perish. <laughs> so it gets a little yeah, frantic, I would call it, this time of year, with, particularly with the social species. Right. And does the wasp, is it a queen? Is there a queen that emerges by the end of the summer that is going to go off and overwinter by herself? like the bumblebee does? Yeah, very similar to the bumblebee. So the paper wasps are kind of the exception. Many new nest foundresses or feet, you know, reproductive females are produced at the end of the growing season. But what's different about them is they, they overwinter in little groupings. So many females will perhaps find a crack in a rock and sort of aggregate there together, often all sisters. But then the, the yellow jackets tend to hibernate by themselves in similar places that a bumblebee would seek out a hibernation site. Um, for example, the bald-faced hornets often tuck themselves under a log lying on the ground in a woodland, under heavy leaf litter, for example. So some places providing them with insulation, but they're generally overwintering singly. But it's the paper wasps that have these little hibernation parties and overwinter in groupings. Oh, wow. So now you just mentioned that they can get a little ornery at the end of the season. What, let's say your average family has a garden in their backyard. Do they need to be concerned about children in the backyard? I mean, I know with bumblebees, bumblebees could care less where you are and what you're doing. In fact, they seem to be totally unfazed by human activity most of the time. What's the best way to approach a wasp or wasps in the yard? So it generally... Most people would only get stung by a social wasp because it's it's a colony, many wasps living together. They have nest guards defending the nest. That's usually where stinging happens or people have run-ins with wasps. For the species like the paper wasps or the aerial yellow jackets that are building nests up in trees, generally that people don't have negative interactions with those nests if they're high enough off, off the ground. Like you just said, Catherine, people could walk underneath it and they wouldn't actively come out and sting you. Um, generally, the ones that you have to be careful of are the ground nesting yellow jackets. And that's when, especially August, when the colony is getting pretty large, someone may run their lawnmower over that ground nest or, you know, step on a ground nest. 
that is usually the species that people are getting stung by. So it's really being mindful and observant when you're out in the garden. Those ground nests have high activity. So you're going to see wasps continuously coming and going from a a rodent hole in the ground. And if you do identify where a nest is, I would just say try and avoid going into that area. Especially now we have, you know, another three, four, five weeks left, and then that nest will be gone after a hard frost. So it's best not to try to intervene at this point during the growing season because the nest is so big and has many occupants that may not end well for the person trying to get rid of it. (laughs) So a solution might be to put a little fence around it or some orange tape and just keep the kids away from that part of the yard till summer's over. Yep, that's a great idea. Just sort of cordon it off, make sure everybody in the family knows the nest is there and not to go, go within 10 feet of it and then just wait it out. Earlier in the season, I've had a neighbor, for example, a non-chemical way to get rid of a ground nesting yellow jacket nest. She actually just put a large Rubbermaid plastic container over the hole and weighted it down with a rock, essentially trapping the yellow jackets in their nest and left it there for a week. And everybody in the nest perished and nobody got stung. So there are non-chemical ways to... um, addressed nests that are maybe not in the right place where there's high human activity. Right. So tell me now, as we wrap up, what is your sense about wasps in terms of the future? I know in your book, you talk about habitat fragmentation and how that's having an impact on wasps. Could you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's really the same drivers of decline of bee populations. You know, wasps need adequate habitat, not only flowering plants like bees need, but they also need a good availability of the prey that they're looking for nearby where they've decided to establish a nest. So they have two really critical components that have to be within flight distance for them to successfully rear more offspring. So with habitat fragmentation, a lack of flowering plants, a lack of prey, that can make it much more difficult for wasp populations to thrive. And then the other drivers, of course, are, you know, pesticide use. Um, The big question mark is climate change, how that may influence insect populations, their prey, availability of flower nectar and so on. So there's a lot of unknowns about, but you can essentially think of wasps having the same issues as bees as far as their needs and what we need to do to, to counteract that. Right. So now, do wasps need a water source? Some wasps do. Paper wasps, for example, seek out a water source. They're combining water with the the wood fiber they collect to make the nest paper. And then we have uh, a number of solitary wasps that will drink water, store it in their crop, and then seek out a certain type of soil, mix the soil and water together to make mud, And then they're using that mud either to make a a freeform mud nest or to maybe partition a cavity nest with mud. So those are some examples of wasps that would need a, a water source. Right. And so I guess the ideal habitat would be if you could have in your backyard native plants. And of course, the goal is trying to reach 70% native in the yard, a water source nearby. 
and some quiet, undisturbed areas where there are no children playing or lawnmowers, that might actually help the population of wasps. Does that sound right? Yeah. And then I would add to that list nesting opportunities, the hollow stems, holes in wood for some of those above ground solitary wasps. They would be looking for those pre-existing cavities somewhere as well. I see. So not deadheading your perennials at the end of summer and letting them stay up all winter would help. Yeah, it's actually the flower stalks from last year's growth. If you cut it off and leave stubble for the following growing season, that will provide the the new nesting opportunities. So generally, you don't have bees or wasps nesting within flower stalks of plants that bloomed and grew that growing season. So it's doing a little less tidying up the following year and providing those opportunities for that growing season. And that's actually really not a problem for a native gardener because those older stalks from previous years, as soon as spring comes, the new growth just totally covers it. You can't even see it. So it's not a problem in terms of aesthetics in the garden. No, I don't think so. I've had people tell me they've done some creative things where they will just stick the old stalks back in the ground in, in a pattern so it looks more purposeful, perhaps, you know, on the in your front yard if your neighbors are wondering why all you have all this stem stubble sticking out. I live in the suburbs. We have tons of deer. I find that the stubble helps prevent deer browsing of that new perennial growth. It kind of gets in their way of their heads getting down to the plant. So that's one added bonus. Yeah. Well, that's great. That's another benefit. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, Heather, I want to thank you again for joining us. It's always a delight to have you on our show. And I wish you all the best for this fantastic new book. You're really, it's going to help educate a lot of people. I know I've certainly learned a lot. Well, thanks, Catherine. I always enjoy speaking with you. I'd like to thank Heather Holm for joining us today. You can order her new book, Wasps, Their Biology, Diversity, and Role as Beneficial Insects and Pollinators of Native Plants by going to her websites at pollinatorsnativeplants.org or pollinationpress.com. You can also go to amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.